I'm going to be touching on multiple verses in Mark 13. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter. But for the sake of brevity, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? We've been working through Mark 11 through 16. And as a reminder, this section of Mark is entirely focused on the events of one week. Mark 11 begins in, at Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry. And then Mark 16 is the resurrection, or Easter Sunday. So it's everything that happens here is this one week of Jesus' ministry. And there's a great book that's been helpful to me as I've organized these sermons. And the book is called The Final Days of Jesus. And that that little book, and I was going to bring it up to the pulpit, but it's sitting in my office. That little book uh, chronologically works through the events of Holy Week. So it kind of helps lay it all out in a way that's easy to understand. So just really quickly to give us context, on Palm Sunday... Jesus enters Jerusalem as, a, as the king. And when he enters Jerusalem, he surveys the temple. That's Palm Sunday. The next day, Monday, Jesus is on his way to the temple and he curses the fig tree. And then he cleanses the temple. The next day, Tuesday, Tuesday is where we are here in chapter 13. On Tuesday, the disciples see that fig tree that Jesus has cursed, and now it's withered all the way to its roots. And then they return to the temple, and Jesus engages with his opponents, teaches the crowds, and then finally commends the widow who put in the two copper coins. And that was the passage that Zach handled last week. On their way out of the temple, here in chapter 13, the disciples comment to Jesus on the beauty of the temple. And Jesus predicts the temple's destruction. They get back to the Mount of Olives and the disciples ask Jesus, tell us more about this, explain this to us. And Jesus has this lengthy teaching where he prophesies about the coming destruction of the temple and his second coming and the end of the age. On Wednesday, Mark is silent about what happens, and Luke, in his gospel account, mentions Jesus teaching daily in the temple. There's nothing specific about the Wednesday of Holy Week. Thursday, we know as Maundy Thursday, and that's the the Last Supper, where Jesus institutes this new covenant, and then he takes the disciples to Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays with his disciples. Maundy Thursday gives way to Good Friday. At midnight on Good Friday, Jesus is arrested. He's betrayed and arrested in Gethsemane. And then he's tried 
and then he's crucified and buried. Saturday is another quiet day. Every Easter I love the song, Up From the Grave He Arose, Low in the Grave He Lay, Jesus My Savior, Waiting the Coming Day, Jesus My Lord. The next verse, Vainly they watch his bed, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they seal the dead, Jesus my Lord. And then finally we have Easter Sunday, the resurrection. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. So that's, that's the events of Holy Week. And that book that I mentioned, The Final Days of Jesus, it's, it's just over 200 pages long. And it's devoted to the events of Holy Week. And if, if you have that book, it's 200 pages, and he gives one page to Mark 13. That's it. One page. He says, yep, here Jesus predicts the future. Not very helpful when you're trying to prepare a sermon. So he deals with Mark 13 in one page. And you, can, you have books and commentaries like this. They can spend entire chapters or hundreds of pages on the Last Supper, on the arrest, on the, on the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, on Palm Sunday. But they will often only give passing mention to Jesus' discourse here in chapter 13. On the other hand, you'll have books that deal with the end times, and those books, those commentaries, they'll spend entire chapters on Mark 13. But as they talk about Mark 13 and Jesus' prediction about the future and, and the second coming, they will give very little time to the context of Holy Week. They'll kind of pull Mark 13 and say, here's what Jesus says about the end times, without thinking about why does he say it in Mark 13. And so early this week, I was thinking, why in the world is this chapter here? Why is it Mark 13? Why, would, why, why isn't this Mark 5 or, or something? Or why isn't this in just an entirely different book? We know that Mark is the shortest gospel, and he has the fastest pace in his narrative, and he takes the fewest detours. And so if Mark includes an event or a chunk of teaching, we can know for certain that Mark includes it purposefully. And Mark considers it vital to his storyline. So in the context of Mark's tightly packed, fast-paced telling of the events of Jesus' ministry, and specifically of Holy Week, Mark thinks that it's important to include 37 verses, an entire chapter where Jesus teaches his disciples about the destruction of the temple, his second coming, and the end of the age. And so this is going to take two weeks. I'm not going to cover everything here this morning. This Sunday, I want to focus on how chapter 13 fits into the immediate context. How does Mark 13 help us understand the events of Holy Week? Once we've done that, next week I'm planning to look more closely at what Jesus is teaching about these future events. What, what, is, what is he telling us is going to happen with the destruction of the temple in AD 70? What's he telling us about his second coming and the end of the age? And what's he telling us about how we ought to live now in the middle of those events? So again, for this morning, why does Jesus 
in this most intense, high stakes week of his ministry, draw his disciples' attention to the future destruction of the temple and to his second coming? How does his teaching here prepare his disciples for what is going to happen over the next few days? And how does, how does chapter 13 serve Mark's intention for his readers to comprehend the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What, what's going on here? The first thing we see in chapter 13 is that something better than the temple is here. Something better than the temple is here. A major theme in Mark's gospel is the blindness and lack of spiritual awareness shown by those who interact with Jesus. Remember chapters 8 through 10. Those chapters have this bookend of blindness. In chapter 8, you have Jesus healing the blind man at Bethsaida, and he does it in two stages. He goes from blind to partial sight to full sight. And then in chapter 10, Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. So there's a a blind man and a blind man and several stories in between. And the point of those stories in between is to show that many people in Jesus's day were spiritually blind. They didn't rightly see Jesus. They didn't really understand who he was, why he had come. Jesus heals the sick, he feeds the 4,000, and the Pharisees say, Jesus, show us a sign. He's just shown you signs. Peter rightly confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and then almost immediately after, he rebukes Jesus when Jesus tells him about his plans to be crucified and then to rise from the dead. Jesus later tells his disciples about his, his coming death and resurrection, and the disciples start arguing about which of them is the greatest. So you see this level of spiritual blindness. The same dynamic is at play here in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Over the past few days, Jesus has come into Jerusalem and he's laid his claim as the long-awaited king. He has cleansed the temple from those who are desecrating it. He has cursed the temple and its religious leaders. And he has confronted his opponents and condemned their faithlessness, pride, and hypocrisy. And after all of that, on their way out of the temple, one of the disciples turns to Jesus and says, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus is the God of the temple. And those in the temple, those who are in charge of the temple, have rejected him. He is the king of the palace and the servants of the palace have failed to recognize and bow to him. And now one of his closest followers who has had a front row seat to everything that Jesus has done and said, this front row seat, this disciple who ought to understand better than anyone says to Jesus, wow, the temple really is impressive. I sure am moved when I look at the temple. The writer of Hebrews helps us understand what's going on here. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 3, 3 through 5.
For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And Moses represents the entire temple system, the sacrificial system. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So, so Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. The king is worthy of more glory than where the king lives. The God of the temple is worth more glory than the temple itself. The temple is the place set aside by God for his people to come and meet with him. The temple is meant to point God's people to God. And instead, they've turned the temple into an idol, a place of false worship. They love the house and they don't love the builder of the house. They invest in and fawn over the beauty of the temple and they ignore the God that the temple is for. And this disciple is making the same mistake that Jesus has just spent the last few days calling out and condemning. And so Jesus says to his disciple, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple is supposed to be a means to an end, a place for God's people to draw near to God. But in their unbelief and spiritual pride, many have turned it into an end in itself, a place to come and perform religious rituals without regard for or recognition of the God they are supposed to worship. Because this is happening, because this temple and its sacrificial system has become an idol that is drawing people's hearts away from the king, the king rejects the temple and all that goes on there, and its destruction is imminent. This afternoon, right after church, Christina and I and Johnny and Emily were going to drive down to Iowa for a wedding, and it's, it's the wedding of a friend's daughter. Now, suppose that after the wedding, someone asks this bride, what was the best part about the day? And this, this bride, she says, my dress was so beautiful. The flowers were perfect. The venue was wonderful. The food at the reception was delicious. And I hope all of those things are true, especially the food. It's, it's appropriate, it's good, it's, it's expected for her to think about and speak about all of those things. But what should we be looking to hear from her? What was the best part of the day? I got to marry my best friend. I'm married to the man I love. From now on, I'm his and he's mine. The wedding and all the pomp and circumstance are meant to highlight and celebrate the joy and beauty and sweetness of the marriage covenant. We dress up for a wedding because it's a good thing. Two people are committing themselves to one another before God. 
And we can make the same mistake in our religious activity. Hey, how was church today? Oh, it was great. The service was so comforting. The music sounded great. I just love singing my favorite songs. The worship, it's so positive and encouraging. The sermon was so interesting. The people at my church, they're just so nice. Our little building, it's so quaint and charming. Again, those are good things. I hope those things are true. But that is not why we're here. We're here to fellowship with the triune God, to remind each other of the hope that we have in him, to repent of our sin and selfishness and unbelief, to receive grace and mercy and peace from him. How was church? Great. We drew near to the throne of grace together. We received mercy and found grace to help in our time of need. Jesus is the king who the throne is meant for. Jesus is the God who the temple was built for. Jesus is worthy of the worship that takes place in the temple. Don't let the place of worship or the means of worship draw your eyes away from the object of worship. Something better than the temple is here. And Jesus says, not only is something better than the temple here, something worse than the destruction of the temple is going to happen. During Holy Week, Jesus and his disciples spend their day in Jerusalem, in and around the temple, and then in the evenings they would withdraw, leave the city, and spend the night in the village of Bethany, which was located near the Mount of Olives. So Jesus makes his prophetic comment about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem as they are leaving the temple. And then shortly after, when they return to the Mount of Olives, the four disciples who are closest to Jesus, these two sets of brothers, Andrew and Peter, James and John, they pull Jesus aside and they ask him for more detail about what he had just said. Jesus when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Verse four. The temple is the most important place in Israel's capital city, Jerusalem. The temple is the center of religious and cultural life for Jews. Jerusalem and the temple had been cruelly destroyed 600 years prior in 586 BC. The Babylonians had come in, they had sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and uh, exiled God's people. It had devastated Israel when that happened. It left a deep scar in Israel's national history and in their cultural and religious identity. It was one of the worst things that had ever happened in Israel's history. And in Jesus' day, Israel's greatest hope was the full restoration of Jerusalem and the temple and all the glory it had under Solomon's rule. Their greatest hope as a people 
was that the nation would be free and independent and secure from all outside influence and danger. And that means that their greatest fear, their greatest national fear, was a repeat of the destruction of 586 B.C. The worst thing that could happen to us would be for that to happen again. And that's exactly what Jesus tells them. Do you see this building? Not one stone is going to be left on another. The entire thing is going to be destroyed. And if they're going to destroy the temple, you know they're going to destroy the entire city. And if they are able to destroy the city, you know that we've been completely overwhelmed by our enemies. You know that 586 BC is happening again. So for Jesus' disciples to hear this, this would have been as bad as, or probably worse, than, if, than how we would feel if Jesus were here now in our day and Jesus told us that a day was coming when the entire city of Washington, D.C. would be obliterated, that the Capitol, the White House, the Supreme Court, and the Pentagon would be destroyed. How would you feel if someone told you that's coming? So it makes sense then that at the first opportunity, these disciples grabbed Jesus and said, tell us more. What are you talking about? When will this happen? What will be the signs? This is really bad, really scary news, and they deeply desire clarity. What's going on, Jesus? What do you mean that something like this is going to happen? And Jesus answers their questions, but notice how he shifts their attention away from the temple and toward him. The disciples are worried about what will happen with the temple, and Jesus wants them, and Mark wants us, the readers, to be more concerned with what will happen to Jesus. So you see, verse 5, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. Verse 26. In these latter days, in this second coming, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Verse 29. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that he, that is the Son of Man, he is near at the very gates. And then finally, verse 35. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. So remember, this is Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus has explicitly told his disciples at least three times that he is going into Jerusalem in order to be arrested, crucified, killed, and buried, and on the third day rise from the dead. He's told them, this is why we're going to Jerusalem. He has predicted his coming destruction And they have stared blankly at him in confusion. They've shrugged it off. I don't know what he's talking about. I'm not going to worry about it. Now he predicts the destruction of the temple and they are worried sick, scared out of their minds. Their worst nightmare is the destruction of the temple. 
It represents catastrophic upheaval and loss of security. And Jesus has been trying to help them see that something even worse is about to happen. They are longing for Messiah to come and to restore the temple, to restore the city, and to restore the nation to glory and security. And what if the Messiah comes and is killed? You're worried about the destruction of the temple. The Messiah, the Son of God, for whom the temple exists, is three days away from being nailed to a Roman cross and buried in a tomb. Many of us wrestle with fear and anxiety. I know some of your stories. You have lost something or someone very dear to you, and it was and remains deeply painful. It has forever changed you, that loss, and you carry the scar of that loss or those losses. And part of that scar is a fear that it's going to happen again, that the other shoe will drop, that pain will come back into your life. You're afraid, will I be able to endure it? What if trouble comes? What if that thing that I fear happens? And I don't have a ticket for you out of trouble or sorrow. I wish that I did. But Jesus tells us in this world, you will have trouble. But I can tell you where to look. Look to Jesus. Look at the context of Holy Week to see what is about to happen to Jesus and how he turns it for our good and for our help. So something better than the temple has come. Something worse than the destruction of the temple is about to happen. And something greater than secure access to the temple is being offered. Jesus spoke these words to his disciples about the destruction of the temple in about right around 33 AD. The destruction of the temple isn't going to happen until 70 AD. So what Jesus is talking about here in some sense is 37 years away. And we're still waiting now 2000 years later for the second coming. So at this point, again, the destruction of the temple, it's, it's decades away. But in just three days, Something, someone, is going to be destroyed. Not the temple, but the Messiah. The very God of the temple. Turn ahead to Mark 15, verse 33. The disciples are afraid that the temple will be destroyed and that their life will be given over to darkness. They're worried about this, this dark storm cloud coming into their life. Now, now read this. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. Elijah. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The worst thing that could ever happen has happened. Your king, your God, your treasure, and the one who loves you best was brutally murdered and put in a grave. Nothing worse will ever happen than the death of Jesus. The worst pain and devastation possible has already been endured. Jesus's anticipation of his death was so agonizing that in Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood. He pleaded with the Father multiple times, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of your wrath, let this cup pass from me. Jesus agonized over this coming destruction and what it would mean for him. The pain and loss that Jesus experienced on the cross is greater than any, anyone can ever experience. And our king, the one who is strong, the one who came to rescue us, that king dying is the worst loss that we can suffer. And it happened. It is a historical fact. The song, the old hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? The first verse, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Third verse, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin. It's fitting that it got dark in the middle of the day during the resurrection. It's right for the sun to hide its face when its creator died. The nagging questions behind our fear of loss, the nagging questions are, how could I possibly survive something like that? And if that happened, this thing that I'm afraid of, if it happened, how could I ever be okay again? And Jesus means for his disciples, and Mark aims for us as readers to know the answer to those questions. Jesus has indeed died. Our greatest fear has been realized. And this great fear has been turned on its head for our good. I said that it would be another 37 years until the destruction of the temple, but on the day that Jesus died, something in the temple was destroyed. So I, I read verse 37 of chapter 15. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At the death of Jesus, something in the temple was destroyed, not by the Romans, but by God himself. 
And not for our ruin, but for our salvation. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. By God, not by man. And God tore the, temple in, tore the curtain in two as a picture of his judgment on and rejection of the temple. The temple is no longer the place where you go to gain access to me. I'm closing its doors. It's over. The temple has been rejected. And he also tore it in two from top to bottom as a sign that because of the atoning death of his son, the door is now open into his presence. You no longer need to go to the temple to worship. In fact, if you go to the temple now to worship, you're, you're committing false worship and it's blasphemy. If you want to worship God, you go straight to his son. You go to Jesus and the door is open for you. And you have access to the throne. Jesus died to absorb your past, present, and future sin. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that the temple points to. The temple is going to be destroyed because Jesus himself has become our temple. Our eternal, secure, indestructible access to to the Father. We no longer need the temple because we can now go directly to God through his crucified, risen, and reigning son. And we'll we'll close here. Jesus' death, it, it takes care of our sins, and it's also supposed to take care of our fear. Jesus' death brings hope to our fear. It redeems our past, present, and future hurts. The greatest tragedy possible has happened, and God was intimately aware of it and in control of it, and he turned it to the greatest possible good. Do you realize the implications of that? If you are trusting in Christ, if you cling to him as your king and as your savior, nothing bad has ever happened to you that God wasn't fully aware of and fully in control of. You have never needlessly suffered. Your suffering has never been random. And your suffering is not a sign that God has abandoned you or that you are cut off from him. There is purpose in your suffering. There is a smiling face behind that dark cloud. And it means that you can take your fear of the future to Jesus. He understands. Jesus understands the painful anticipation of suffering and of loss. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing will ever happen to you that is outside of his control. And he will always work all things for your good, whether it's joy or sorrow, pain or pleasure, gain or loss, 
life or death. So I want to close with Paul's words in Romans 8. Paul looks at all of this suffering and he looks at the suffering of Christ. He looks at all the destruction that we've endured, all the destruction that we might endure, and he looks at the destruction that Christ has endured, and he says this in Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we can know for certain that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because Christ has died Christ has endured suffering that we could never understand. Christ has experienced loss that we will never come close to. And because Christ is alive, because Christ has conquered sin and death, we know that we are held by him and that all of our suffering, past, present, and future, is in his hands and in his control. Help us to rest in him. Amen.